Inheritrix Productions. Zeros and Zeros with the Moxie Sisters. Welcome to Shiro's and Zeros. I'm Roxy. And I'm Foxy. And we're the Moxie Sisters. Hi, Roxy. Hello, Foxy. How's it going over there today? It is rainy. It is relaxed. I am relaxed. I am in comfortable clothing and... The Shiro I'm going to talk about today is amazing, and I'm, she has me in this mellow-like mood. I'm, I love it. I'm feeling yeah. very mellow, and but excited to talk about, um, excited to share her story. So I'm good. Awesome. How are you? I'm good, too. I'm actually really relaxed, too, now that you mention it. And it's also been, like, rainy here, which is kind of ideal because it means, I was telling you before we started recording, it means none of my neighbors will be mowing and my dogs won't be out in the yard barking. So they're not going <laughs> to make a guest appearance like they did on the last show. But we'll get into the last show more here in a minute. Um, yes. It is nice to have a mellow day. And I'm very excited, too, about your Shiro, especially, because I know nothing. I know other than it's going to be epic and amazing, and I'm super excited. Uh, and the zero we have today is going to be really interesting. It's going to be a time machine zero, and it's also going to be one of those stories where we kind of have to weigh out, like, well, how big a zero is she really, and how much of this is kind of contextual? You know, it's one of those, but it's a very interesting story. And since um, this is the first of our two June Pride shows, we wanted to highlight some interesting queer uh sheroes and zeros so here we are yes. but before we get to that um i did come across this little piece of tidbit about our name because we were just you know texting some goofy stuff back and forth the other day so the word moxie came into popular usage like i think around the 30s but it came into pop culture because it was the brand name of a carbonated cola beverage, uh, which is originated in Lowell, Massachusetts, called Moxie Nerve Food. Nerve food? Moxie Nerve Food. Uh, and it says it was a sweet soda similar to root beer with a bitter aftertaste. So kind of like an herbal thing. And this was in 1876. So but did it give you nerve or did it take it away? No, I'm kidding. Exactly. Exactly. That's what <laughs> that's why it came to mean like moxie, like, oh, you got nerve, you got that's what I was thinking. Like thing. there might have been something in there to amp you up a little bit. Woo! Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My rackets are working. But we we dig a little deeper and I found out that um, the brand name was taken from a Native American Abenaki word for dark water from the main lakes and river names. These bodies of water included variations of the word moxie, meaning dark water, which was spoken by the, and I'm sorry if I butcher these names, I'm going to at least try, the Mi'kmaq, Maliseet, Passamaquoddy, and the Penobscot peoples of coastal Maine. I started to say those are those sound eastern, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the current most common usage of the word refers to bold determination and spunk, building up your nerve, which is kind of, you know, I thought it was worth mentioning, especially sharing with Roxy when I found that, because that is kind of what we're trying to do here. We're kind of trying to like uh, show ladies who showed nerve and bravery and, and, you know, like we always say, 
moxie they found they found their moxie they they turned into sheroes they made often difficult but good choices and everyone can that's kind of the yeah that's the point the point is to try to lift them up and tell their stories because you know the big p is not going to and uh yeah hopefully this inspires people to speak up speak out be passionate live your truth and um, make the world a better place because these heroes that we've talked about they've all done that they've made the world a better place yes they have yes they have and uh more fun place too so yeah a more vibrant vivid alive magical place Mm -hmm. Um, a more loving place which is what i love to see (laughs) i love love too wouldn't it be nice to live in a society that wasn't so effing mean um oh my god yeah like i turned on the news this morning and i was like crying within 20 minutes not even that far in and i was like okay i have to turn this off i have a responsibility and know what's going on i have the basics and it's a shit show and yeah wouldn't it be nice if we turned on the news and it wasn't a complete shit show every time that would be something i can't stick with it for very long because i start to feel physically sick you know and i'm like crying and i'm like oh my god and Uh what the hell and then i'm like you know trying to pull myself together and uh yeah so well anyway anyway so um i thought i think you had something for our previously on segment from last time i do so when i talked about Simone Siguan's life and her spy name was Nicole Manette I said you could google girl with a gun and she would pop right up well that is incorrect friends and I'm sorry for that there are lots of girls with guns which is actually pretty cool and you will act you'll see all kinds of pictures of war sheroes and then like other stuff um (laughs) so instead if you want to see the iconic pictures of Simone Seguin, just Google Nicole Minette, and it's Nicole without an H, and Minette is M-I-N-E-T, and it will just pop right up, and I wanted to say just something about her that occurred to me, like after we did the show, mm-hmm. about how she was asked if she had killed anyone in the war by a reporter, and I said she'd gone on to have six children, she became a pediatric nurse, The thing is, I imagine there was a lot more to her story and that that quote was very restrained, um, given another quote about her. Um, But, you know, that might not be what she wanted her children to hear, her grandchildren to hear. Um, There's trauma associated with that i mean any way you look at it and that's why a lot of people don't talk about the war you know i mean i have Mm -hmm. family members who some will say some things but there are just some there are certain parts that they just will not talk about so i imagine there was probably a lot more to uh simone's to simone's life in that period but um it's just something that occurred to me you know yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, 
you can see a lot of examples of that with people's stories trying to kind of put as much distance between themselves and the war as they could, whether it was changing their names or moving to some, I mean, granted, a lot of people fled, I'm not like, but post-war trying to reestablish some kind of life. You didn't want to dwell on the horror that you had just spent years living through and lost so many people to. So yeah, last episode, we were talking about this before we started recording about how we were both just so amped up uh, with the energy and the action and the excitement of those stories. And obviously the tragedy, like there's just so many feelings, feelings, oh my God. <laughs> um, and then the really interesting thing was that when we listened to the playback there, you'll notice it about the half hour, a little after the half hour mark, just after the Sophie Scholl story, there are these kind of little intermittent knocking sounds. And we tried to run down what that was. I've never had that technical problem in any other recording I've done. Um, I've had other weird sound glitches and a little electronic blah, blah, blah. But anyway, we we decided that the show was really good. It was full of energy. We weren't gonna re-record it. So if you hear a few of those little knocking sounds, um, I don't know, maybe, I feel like maybe we had some some good energy, some some cheers from the other side. That's how I, I'm interpreting it. I agree. I do too. But you know, you and I, we think very alike. So, but yeah. So if you hear some weird noises on the last show, um, yeah, draw your own conclusions and uh, either you know give us a pass on what could be interpreted as a small little technical sound glitch, or be excited like we are that. Uh, Maybe the night wishes flew by or something like that. Oh, yeah. I think all of those ladies were, those that are now on the other side, were probably very happy to hear their stories because I firmly believe that uh, they did hear us. So that's my belief. Anyway. And they deserve to have their stories told. I mean, Absolutely. those are just all such incredible tales. Like each and every one could be made into a movie or a series. I mean, it's just such next level superhero stuff. So I'm so glad we did that episode. That was such a blast. So um, I do have one quick thing for our shout outs corner before we get into our amazing Shiro that I can't wait to hear about. Uh, as of last night, I got to see one of my great, wonderful, beautiful, amazing, brilliant friends, Balanesia Tolbert, do her one woman show, Tales of a Blurred Ballerina. And the show has been online. She's just kind of a work in progress, but honestly, like, far progress in my opinion um and they're doing they're doing a series of online events of course by the time this podcast comes out like it will probably have come and gone but there are going to be other iterations i imagine so go check out the vortex repertory theater in austin texas especially for you austin area friends out there um val is incredible and beautiful and the show was so it was just, it hit all the buttons for me. Like it transported me back to being an awkward teenager in the nineties. It had me cackling, it had me crying, it had me giggling, it was beautiful. It was transformative. I mean, it was just such a great piece of theater and she killed it. So I just wanted to shout out Val. We love you, amazing job. Um, can't wait to connect you, you know, with you in person again, hopefully this year, I'm really hoping to get to see some of my beloved people now that we're all going to be, you know, vaccinated and okay to move around on the planet Earth again. Yes, that would be lovely. And congrats, Val. That's awesome. Yeah. And she yeah. is beautiful. Yeah. 
She's amazing. I mean, to power. And I was going to say, like, there were moments in that show that really recalled to me our Audre Lorde story because she really talks about being othered and um, what it is to be embodied and to be um, stolen from with your own sense of self in your body, in your life, in your love of whatever it is you love, you know, and I just loved it. It was amazing. And, and as a nineties kid, it totally, you know, it was very, uh, there were parts of it that were so recognizable to me in my own lived experience. So yay Val. Yay Val. Yes. So yeah, but that's all I have, uh, for the moment. And then, uh, yeah, I cannot, I cannot wait to hear this incredible story and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you actually found this story doing your research for the last show, right? Like a World War II, this has a World War II connection? It does have a World War II connection. So I was looking for badass heroes and this was one of the first names that popped up because of the time period that I was looking, you know, researching for my, the ladies that I wanted to present. And um, the more I wrote and researched and wrote some more and listened to this woman's voice you know she she tells her own story which we'll come back to that the more I felt like no I really feel like this needs to be um part of our our queer celebration you know and awesome because so much of what she did had a huge impact on the LGBTQIA on our siblings um and we'll get to that then we'll get to that too like she she is an interesting shiro because she's kind of a shy shiro if that makes any sense mm -hmm. she's a shy shiro but she did some badass shit and yeah. she's helped a lot of people awesome. and i think you will be surprised all right so sources new york times npr several YouTube videos, including a short documentary called Flying Solo, Land Illegal, Them, and Gender Avenger. So those are my sources. And our Shiro today was born on April 7th, 1921 in Manhattan. Her name is Rabina Fedora Asti. She was raised in Greenwich Village. Her father, David Asti, was a featherweight boxer who had anglicized his surname after his manager said he needed to sound, quotation marks, less Italian. So the original spelling of the name is A-S-T-I, and her father dropped the I and added an E-Y to the end. And Robina went back to, the using, to using the original spelling of her last name when she transitioned, which that... That is going to come up later in her story. Rabina's mother, Helen, was a homemaker, AKA unpaid, hardworking woman. Okay, so back to our Shiro. From an early age, Rabina showed an interest in electrical devices. Her mind was just, well, no pun intended, wired for this. She had a great aptitude for doing this work. As a teenager, she had a steady business fixing radios around her Greenwich Village neighborhood. I mean, I was a flipping car hop when I was a teenager I couldn't even do that well so right I just <laughs> yeah. did shelves in a flower shop I was uh building repairing radios okay She's yeah to, yeah okay we're off very, to a good, brilliant start very smart lady yes she attended Brooklyn Technical High School but dropped out at 17 to join the Navy 
her training in electrical engineering took her to Wake Island, a military outpost in the Pacific Ocean, where she installed radios and naval aircraft, which was a major priority as war with J Japan loomed. Yes. Yeah, we're back to the war stuff. So, yeah. yeah, she served throughout World War II. Um, decades before Rabina's transition, Rabina fought as a fighter pilot during the war in the Pacific where she flew reconnaissance missions hunting Japanese warships. Yeah. So she was a okay. major badass and she was an incredible, incredible uh, pilot. And she continued to be a pilot up until her death at 99 years of age. Whoa. But we, yeah, we're going to save that. We'll come back okay. around to that as well. Awesome. So Rubina's discharged as a lieutenant commander after the war ends. And she goes back to New York where she and three of her Navy um, friends opened the supper club in White Plains, which is north of New York City. And it just wasn't her bag. She got tired of the restaurant business. So she sold her part of the business, took a job with EW Axe, a mutual fund company operating out of the Carroll Cliff Mansion, a Romanesque castle overlooking the Hudson River in Terrytown, New York, which sounds... Ooh. I want to work in a castle. That sounds fancy and probably chilly, but like very beautiful. <laughs> Grab a sweater. Lap blanket, yeah. I, I would love it. Anyway, um, she hadn't transitioned yet, and she married Evangelina Diaz Perez in 1958. But Rabina knew, and this is how she describes it, and really, again, I want you guys to hear her speak in her own voice. She has a very lovely way of speaking, but she knew as a child that she was different. That's how she put it. And so she was dressing as a man, going to work, coming home, changing into women's clothing, basically living this double life. And the pressure became too much. Mm -hmm. And so she quit her job. She came out as a woman and amicably divorced Ms. Diaz Perez. So that's a lot. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And she began to transition at a time in the 1970s when transgender people were poorly understood and terribly treated. They still are, by the way, and it has to stop, which is why we are doing this right now. Um, yes. Even being in New York City didn't spare her from bigotry. You would think, oh, okay, you know, she's in New York City. Maybe it would be a little bit better there. No. They, she was treated terribly but no we're gonna hear more just to like preview uh for next episode we're gonna hear more about that whole scene of the new york new york city and how it treated its trans people in the 60s and 70s we're gonna hear more about that next very time. good very good yeah so so she dealt with a lot but it didn't stop her i mean she had moxie so she doesn't care. She's like not going to let it stop her. And she decides she's going to fully inhabit her gender expression. And so she intentionally takes on these jobs that are viewed as, and I put this in quotation marks, jobs for women. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have to think of the times. There's no judgment on my end. The big P is what I always judge. Um, so we're in the 1970s. So jobs for women. 
Uh, Rubina worked as a makeup artist at Bloomingdale's, a housekeeper, an off-the-books hairdresser. She also began trading stocks, eventually earning enough money to make that her full-time source of income. So she nice. really, yeah, she smart was smart lady. Yeah, very yeah. smart. That said, flying was still her greatest passion. And it's so beautiful to hear her talk about her love for flying. I'm not going to say too much about that because we are going to play a clip in her voice for our friends listening out there. But she, she was made to fly. She really was. But let's get back to what put her name out into the world, so to speak. This is her first battle, not counting a fucking world war, that she fought and won. And it's a big battle. Soon after her transition, her doctor told her that as part of her application to renew her pilot's license, he had to give her an internal physical exam as required by federal aviation law, the administration, basically. Are you fucking kidding? What? An internal exam. Mm Mm-hmm. That was the law. That's a stupid fucking law. Oh, yeah. If mm-hmm. you talk about invasing, invasive and demeaning, like I said, I can't yeah. talk today. I'm stuttering. culture law. But anyway, it's not disgusting. to get too down. And that yeah. kind of shit's still going on today, but we yeah. can talk about that some other time. So here's what she does. She reaches out to the 99s, which is an organization for female pilots, and she petitioned the government to change its rule, and they did. Oh, yes, ma'am. So she stopped that bullshit. She paved the way for other women to not have to have an internal exam. My God. Ugh, she changed the system. Yeah. yeah. Fuck yeah, Miss Rubina. Yeah. So we need to get into a personal life because the next battle she fights is inextricably tied to her a relationship. Okay. In 1980, Rubina met Norwood Patton an artist at a bar on the Upper East Side. And it's so fun to hear her talk about their relationship. The documentary Flying Solo is only about a seven minute documentary, friend, So it's really, it's worth the time. But in the short piece, she talks about how when she told Norwood, you know, she was transgendered, he was very upset at first. And maybe a week had gone by and he came to her in tears and he apologized. Oh, good. Love is stronger than, love is the strongest thing out there. We know this. It's stronger than hate. It's stronger than fear. Mm -hmm. And he apologized and said, you're a woman to me. I mean, these aren't the exact words. You know, you are a woman. You're a woman. I love you. I want to be with you. And so they were dating. They were together. And like every month, he would ask her to marry him. Every month. (laughs) <laughs> and she I love a yes, romantic. I know. And she said she would find, you know, excuses to not go through with it. But they they did finally. She finally said yes. And <laughs> I think I think it was kind of a game, is what it sounds like to me. Yeah, it's a sweet yeah, little game, you know. It is. But they finally married in 2004 in an airplane hangar at the Orange County Airport in upstate New York which is perfect. oh that's rad i love it yeah great venue for a wedding Slot the space oh that'd be fun that sounds and like a blast they had eight wonderful wonderful years together i wish they'd had 
longer together, but you know, they met later in life and he passed in 2012. Mm. So at this point, Rabina had been living quietly, just doing her thing as a woman for roughly 40 years. And when her husband passed, she did what everyone should do, what most women do. She applied for survivor benefits from the Social Security Administration in 2012, um, a few months after Norwood made his journey to the other side. Right. It took a year for the agency to deny her application on the grounds that she was not legally a woman at the time of her marriage. Fuck them. Fuck them hard. That's some bullshit. Okay, so here's here's where they deny it. Her government issued documents, including her pilot's license and her social security card, recognized her as a woman. The agency's determination of survivor benefits was based on her birth certificate, which stated she was born as male. So that's why they denied it, because of her fucking birth certificate. Ridiculous. Yes. Ridiculous. And she was fucking livid, rightly so. Yeah, as am I. Ugh. Yeah, you know, they just look for anything. They, they just look I for mean, any fucking thing they can. But that doesn't stop our Shiro. She gets online. She starts looking for help. She finds Lambda Legal, a nonprofit law firm that specializes in lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender rights. To this day, guys, mm-hmm. um, get on their website. Lambda yeah. Lambda yeah. Awesome. Check them out. Big claps for them. All right, here's a French name. We're back to the French. (laughs) Anyone who's been following us knows that I, Roxy, am not good with the French. Um, Mr. Drew Levasseur. That sounds perfect. All right. Yeah. I don't really know if that's right. By the day, your learning curve is straight up. You're you're good. (laughs) He was running Lambda's transgender rights practice at the time, and he now works for the National LGBT Bar Association and Foundation. But while he was still with Lambda, he said about Rabina in a phone interview, it was an amazing day when she, Rabina, walked into our offices. We could feel her energy, her anger at the system. So Lambda took Rabina's case and took the government to court in June of 2013. Guys, we... Y'all, I need to stop saying guys. That's stupid. Y'all, we're not talking that long ago. I mean, think about this. Fucking 2013. No, it feels like five minutes ago to me. It but, does feel. Know. I mean, I know. I know that it's a little longer than five minutes. I know. Ago, but, yeah. But yeah. still, like that, we're still doing this bullshit. Mm-hmm. I don't. It just is mind blowing. Anyway, but the government is taken to court in June of 2013. Eight months later. I love this part, no pun intended. On Valentine's Day, 2014, big hearts, Rabina checked her bank account and found a large deposit, nearly two years of back pay from those assholes at the Social Security Administration. Fuck yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Not only did Rabina win her case, the administration changed its rules regarding transgender survivors and the documentation requirements for proving one's gender in the first place. 
So this is huge, y'all. It's huge, huge, huge. Once again, change the system. Major moxie. For fucking real. Wow. And I hadn't even heard about her, but we'll get to that in a minute. Because uh, Rubina soon became somewhat of a celebrity for obvious reasons in the LGBTQ community at a time when transgendered rights were just just beginning to be a national issue okay 2014 really really just i mean Mm -hmm. come on anyway i'm gonna focus on the positive because i get so angry (laughs) (laughs) she embraced her newfound role even though she really was as i said kind of a shy shiro that's the way she comes across to me uh she gave speeches she marched in pride parades and she lived as full a life as she could as an older transgender woman. And in November of 2020, Out Magazine named her to its annual Out 100 list. Awesome. Yeah. So going back to the case that made Rabina most well-known, Levisio said her, Rabina, telling her story had a huge impact for the transgender community because of violence against transgender people, many of us, don't get to grow old. But here she was enjoying her life in her 90s. As she should, as all people should be able to do, except for bigots. Yeah. Throw that last part in there. Yeah, I agree totally. And that, yeah, I was thinking that of like she got to live into her elder years. And that's sadly can be it's such a rare thing, you know, for the trans community. Yeah, and the stats are terrifying. Way. Yeah. yeah. It should not be that way. We've got to fix it. Well, we're trying to do our part today and we will keep keep on keeping on and standing with our siblings out there. But I'm going to talk a bit about Rabina's personality. Uh, I want to talk about her passion for flying. She was a licensed pilot and instructor starting in her 20s and she continued to fly every weekend well into her 90s, well into her 90s, traveling from her home on the Upper East Side of Manhattan to, I hope I don't say this wrong, Teterboro Airport in Northern New Jersey. You got it, yeah. Okay, cool. She moved to San Diego at the beginning of the pandemic nightmare shit show that started last year, having lived most of her life in New York City. So that was a big change uh, for her. Yeah, that's a big shift. But she took her last flight with a student in July of of 2020 and was in the process of establishing a Guinness World Record as the world's oldest active pilot and oldest flight instructor. Yes. Fuck yeah. And she's just, she was so quiet about it though. Just, I don't know. She's just so wonderful. Anyway. After her husband died, um, Rubina became very close to one of her grandsons, Eric Hummel, who lived with her for six years after he graduated from the University of Pennsylvania. And she was like a den mother to her grandson and his, his friends. And she would cook dinners on Sundays and, you know, feed them real food because you're like in college, you're eating vending machine. Vending machine. Exactly. If, if even that ramen, uh-huh. you know, that yeah, stuff. Yeah. She'd feed them real food and she would tell them stories about growing up in the Great Depression and fighting in World War II. And they just loved her. I'm sure that 
Oh my god, yeah. A like a coolest, table to be sitting yeah, around. Yeah. Coolest grandma ever. Come on. For real. In 2019, uh, she and her grandson founded the Cloud Dancers Foundation, which provides assistance and awareness, awareness for older transgender people. Her grandson said, she would say that she had been through a depression, through a world war, and that she had learned to just keep living. She wanted to remind other transgender people who feel alone that there are people who care about them. And I think there are two things behind it. You know, obviously she's focusing on transgender women for a reason, but she's looking at the older population because as we know, elderly people are invisible in our society or youth obsessed society. I can't tell you how many times in my day job I've had to advocate for mm -hmm. the elderly. It's just ridiculous. Um, they, they're, they're just, they feel alone. It's like their world gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and they feel invisible. So it's nice that she did that. And Cloud Dancer is a nickname, by the way, for an acrobatically inclined pilot that came from World War I. Mm. And Rabina was rightly given this nick nickname. And I love it, Cloud Dancer. I just think that's really yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. She saw a really strong connection between flying and living as a transgender person. These are her words. I want to use her words. One of the unique things about flying is that you've got to be able to move from one position to another because you can't accept where you are, which mm. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She loved being able to have that freedom to just be and to just yeah. move and yeah. limitless. I'm sure it probably does feel limitless. The way she describes flying and being in a plane, it just feels like the possibilities are endless you can just do anything mm -hmm. you're a cloud dancer you're a fucking cloud dancer it yeah, sounds yeah. awesome i mean yeah. i'm a little afraid of heights but if i was flying the plane because i'm kind of a backseat driver i think i'd be okay <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> i'm a bit of a control that. freak yeah, but if i'm a control freak too maybe if i yeah but there's so many little dials and thingies and shit <laughs> you gotta know my brother's really into into aviation and trying to do his pilot thing eventually and I've seen the cockpits and man, that's a lot of shit to keep track of. I don't know. She was just meant to, to she's fly. Remarkable. She's incredible. Yeah. I love the thought of her like in her nineties up there in her plane, just like happy. Yes. And, and still teaching, still teaching yeah. people. Yeah. It's, she's just a, she's a badass. She's a shiro. So Rabina, a World War II veteran, a mutual fund executive who inspired a generation of transgender people with her successful fight for her husband's social security benefits, and who just last year became the world's oldest active flight instructor. She did pass on March 12th of this year in San Diego at 99 years old, and she was surrounded by loved ones. She had a peaceful passing um she is a cloud dancer in every sense of the words and we salute you rabina asti cloud dancer we thank you for being brave for being true to your spirit 
In your determination, you blazed a trail. You helped those who will continue to come behind you. So it's really an honor to share the Shiro story. The struggle for equality is far from over, but we thank you, Cloud Dancer, and we stand with our trans siblings and with all people who are being pushed to the margins. And I want to end by allowing our friends out there to hear Rabina's voice and powerful words. What do I like about flying? I guess it is being a bird, to be able as a person, as a human being, to lift off from the earth. I can't tell you what a pleasing thing is to be taking off from an airport and you're in the clouds and you're flying up and there's sort of all of a sudden starts glow in front of you. And as you go further and further and you break out, you see the clouds look like just wonderful balls of cotton all lit up by the moon. It's extraordinary. Awesome. Oh, let's take a little breath. <laughs> Yeah, like I cry when I watch her story. I don't know what it is. Like I, every video I watched, like just her demeanor and the way she has a way, a presence about her, the way she speaks and, and just how you could see in her eyes, how fucking angry. And also like when she would talk about Norwood, how like happy, but also sad she was, uh, she just kind of stole my heart. Yeah, yeah, mine too. I'm gonna have to watch that whole that whole little documentary. Well, she changed the system. God, that's amazing. Well, yeah, and I was just thinking, like, there's something extra, kind of special about the fact that she wasn't, I don't know, you know, an activist or a politician or a celebrity of any kind. Like, she was just quietly through living her life and being fucking mad and stubborn and doing something about it, like change things forever for people to come behind her and that's such a like if you can do that with your life how incredible is that incredibly incredible <laughs> what yeah what you're saying like she and she admitted that you know she said that she didn't she, she really wasn't part of the whole activism movement she wasn't part of all that she wasn't loud she wasn't you know she was just trying to live her life live a peaceful life and because she had been through some hell obviously a world war and then yeah transitioning like that in a time when people were i don't know if they were any meaner back then than they are now or not yeah we're gonna hear about some louder trans sheroes next week um who both are incredible in their own right but also as a team were amazing and who are literally like legendary figures in queer history that every every little moxie american queer baby needs to know about and everybody else too not just not just us queers but everybody um so i we're gonna switch tones now that we've had such a gorgeous touching amazing inspirational shiro story and uh we're going to get in our time machine. So first, let me say I have, uh, I sourced this from a Wikipedia article, a 
Murderpedia article, which is great because it's got some the oldie timey kind of newspaper accounts of things. Um, Deadline.com and the Something's Not Right podcast from their September 2017 show. They do a good coverage of this tale I'm about to share with you. So I found this, this is an interesting love gone wrong story that is very queer and very disturbing. And we are gonna get into a murder. So for our friends out there that are not into the kind of like harder core true crime moments of this show, you might wanna skip this one. I don't know, I'm just giving you a little warning. For those of you who wanna hang with us, we're traveling to Memphis, Tennessee, and the banks of the mighty Mississippi. Mississippi River is going to figure into this story too. I intentionally did not do any like homework so I could like react in real time. So yeah, I did not I'm, expect to go to Tennessee. I did not think that's where we were going to go. All right. Well, not, on, not only are we going to Tennessee, we're going to get in our time machine and we're going back to the year 1872. Oh, wow. We are. Okay. Yeah. All so, right. So November 26th of that year, our zero was born, Ms. Alice Jessie Mitchell. Uh, she was born to Isabella and George Mitchell, and she had two older brothers and two older sisters, and their family was fairly well off. I couldn't, I think they had like a large kind of farm making, you know, like a big farm kind of situation. Like they were upper middle class, like pretty well-to-do people. Out of her family, Alice was closest to her brother Frank, and they liked to play marbles together and shoot rifles. Alice also loved horses and liked helping her father take care of his horse, and she would even ride bareback like a boy would. Oh my God! Ah, cut your pearls. Not in the eighteen eighties. <laughs> and she got really good at like taking care of the harness and the buggy and getting the horse hooked up to the buggy, and like you know, she was she had it going on. Um, she also liked playing with the rope swing that they had in the yard, doing flips and climbing and marbles, tops, baseball, football. She was on a children's baseball team. Like she was an outdoorsy gal. She liked the outdoors. She liked sporty kind of shit. And her mother, Isabella, tried to get her to do the girly shit that her sisters were, were doing. And all the young ladies were supposed to be up to the sewing and the needlework and the crocheting. Yawn. Yarn. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, but Alice was like, fuck this shit, I'm bored, I don't, uh -uh. and she was not into it, and she was also not into boys, and according to accounts of the day, she was even rude to young men. Sometimes. Oh, how dare she? How very dare she? And most of the accounts of the time call her a, quote, tomboy, which I think we've already mentioned, we don't love that term. Um, we do not, we do not. It's okay no. to be a tomboy, but it's not okay to be, yeah, fuck that. It's, mm -mm, mm -mm. Those things are not exclusively owned by boys. Like, she liked playing sports. She liked riding horses. She liked climbing trees. She liked being outside. She was just an outside. That's yeah. called being a person who likes being outside. Exactly. Yeah. Fucking lutely. Yeah. Some of us like sitting around crocheting because we have other kinds of anxiety to deal with and we're just not that physical. But you know. Well, I don't really like any of those things. So that makes me, I don't know what. <laughs> a hermit a person we all have different <laughs> shit we want to do and it doesn't have to all be i want to lay in bed and watch netflix is that okay yeah i think that's non-gender specific <laughs> i think pretty much anyone can enjoy that right yeah okay so anyway we get into alice's childhood a little bit more they say she was slow at school and she had no interest in music or drawing she seemed to be absent-minded and couldn't focus and they called her quote willful and whimsical 
which I think sounds cool. Like I love a willful, whimsical person, but you know, whatever. Yeah. We have to think about this being in the 1890s, you know, like it was willful and whimsical. How dare willful she? Willful and whimsical as a young girl. And her <laughs> teachers seemed to think that she was unbalanced. And mm. I'd like to make fun of them, but it turns out they're right, which we will yeah. get into in a little while. And it's the reports from the Times say that her behavior got more unbalanced at quote about the time her womanhood was established. End quote. Ew. I know, right? Gross. Ew. Thank you. Yeah. Anyway, she started having really bad headaches and sickness during her period, and including nervous spells where she would tremble and shake. So, like, not not good. No, it sounds like there was something very wrong. Yeah, I have to wonder. I mean, it sounds to me, yeah, like she had some, if nothing else, at least like a hormone imbalance or some kind of bio. Yeah, something was not right. Yeah. And it's also said that she never really had any friends like at school. She never, obviously, she never showed any interest in boys, but not really even in other children as friends. And even to her family, she was kind of distant and detached. So she did for a while attend the Higby School for Young Ladies there in Memphis, which is where she met her neighbor, Frida, quote, quote, Fred. Fred was her nickname, Frida Ward. And we're going to call her Fred going forward. So at the time they met, Alice was 16 and Fred was 14. And for the first time ever, Alice formed a bond with someone. And Fred, who was apparently very traditionally femme, like, you know, into the girly things, but really cared for Alice. And so the two of them kind of came inseparable, fell in love. And Fred's pet name for Alice was Allie. So this is essentially the Victorian era, but I don't know what we call that in America. Antebellum, post-bellum, post-Civil War. I don't know. Anyway, Victorian era works for me because I know more about that from theater and literature. Frilly willy, uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's, the, it's the high neck corseted time. Lacy, uptight, yeah. Lots of pressed flowers and handkerchiefs and, you know. Um, Cameos. Yeah. Part of that time was that it was not uncommon for close female friends, even like cousins or sisters, to like hold hands and kiss each other and hug a oh, lot yeah. and like display a lot of affection for one another nobody I love that. Anne of Green Gables like that's what that just reminded me of like in that mm-hmm. show like they're very yeah it was that was just considered normal yeah yeah so there was nothing particularly weird about that um nothing sexual about it yeah no exactly and you know for all intents and purposes in 1889 like being gay quote unquote as a concept like wasn't even in the pop culture so to speak, or, you know what I mean? Or at least certainly not within this culture that Alice was in. But yeah, these girls were definitely having a serious relationship, a lover relationship, not just a like, we're friends and we hold hands relationship. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So in the year after they met, in May of 1890, the Wards, Fred's family, moved to Gold Dust, Tennessee, which is about 80 miles north of Memphis. And uh, this took Fred away from Alice. Needless to say, Alice was not happy about this, but they immediately began corresponding and uh, promised to visit when they could. So that summer of 1890, Alice was able to go see Fred and she spent about two or three weeks there because that's what you did back in the day. If you were going to fucking take your horse and your ass 80 miles away, you're going to camp out for a while with your relatives or your friends because, you know, that journey probably took days. I'm just saying. Oh, yeah. And it was hot and yucky. 
I'm just making that up because I don't know what time of year it was, but I just oh, always imagine great. that it's like hot and it's yucky and it's yeah. No, oh no, this was summer. Yeah, this was the summer oh, God. on the banks those... of the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. You're basically going directly up the river from Memphis to Gold Dust. Um, no, thank you, especially not in all that clothing. Oh, oh my God. God, right? Can Four you freaking imagine? And corsets. And... <laughs> oh God, no. So, um, so that December, like. At the end of that year, Fred came down to Memphis to see Alice for a couple of weeks. And so, you know, these girls were making this long distance shit work for a while anyway. But it was during this holiday time visit where Fred was staying with Alice in Memphis that Alice started to go a little off the rails. And so she went off and she bought some laudanum, kind of thinking that maybe she would take it or maybe she would give it to Fred. And for those of you that don't know, laudanum is a tincture and is um, 10% powdered opium. So it's basically just an opium tincture and certainly enough of it could OD you and kill you. Back then you could get it without a prescription. Neat 1800s, such good times. (laughs) We've talked about how much we would not have wanted to live in those times before, haven't we? For so many reasons. Yes. But I mean, not you know, over-the-counter laudanum, hey. I'm, I probably would have been <laughs> down with that. I'm just saying, like, if I have to wear all the fucking clothing and, like, dusty and horses. Of- and I like horses, but I'm allergic to them. So, like, I would have been miserable and I would have just been, like, doped up all the time. Anyway, yeah. So, uh, so Alice shows Fred this bottle of laudanum that she's bought. And she's like, yeah, I'm thinking maybe I'll poison you with it or poison me with it. Or maybe we should both take it or I don't know. And Fred's a little bit like, hmm, what the fuck? So they stay up all night because obviously Fred's like, we're not, uh, I'm not sleeping. Wait a second. Wait a second. She, she wants to poison them with it. She She's wants thinking about it. She's just like a little like, hmm, I'll get some laudanum just in case. And then she decides like, I'm just going to show it to Fred to make sure so- Fred knows that I have this bottle of laudanum that I might take it or I might give it to her. Or she wasn't going to get high. She was going to. Put, she just had it as like I'm, almost I'm, like she bought a weapon in a way you know what I mean it was like, yeah that's so weird okay yeah. the next day after this laudanum night where she's like hey maybe I'll poison us all but maybe not <laughs> they're going down to the boat because Fred's gonna get on the boat to go back up to gold dust to her family and fucking Alice locks them both in an estate room on the riverboat and drinks the whole bottle of laudanum in a suicide attempt oh my god Drama, drama big drama she's like 18 she's 18 and i think uh fred is 16 at this point yeah it's a big dramatic what's well, the motivation I, behind I mean, this i don't understand like what's motivating this i'm not Do we really know? sure either we don't really know because uh, allegedly like it seemed to be going okay you know they were visiting each other and writing each other and just like doing their thing but alice is getting a little weird I don't know. I don't know what else, you know, there's not much, of course, because she's a woman and it was 1898. There's not a whole lot known yeah, about true. her situation. I mean, unlike some of our ladies that we've covered from this time period, she did not grow up in poverty. She didn't, you know, as far as I could tell, she wasn't abused or anything. She just was a little fucking weird from the time she was pretty young. Well, maybe all along, like the whole detached thing and like, she's never really bonding with anybody until she met Fred. And then she way fucking over bonds with Fred. Obsessed. Yeah. Well, when you told me she had never been attached to anyone and then she like, I just imagined she glommed onto her like uh, an alien on 
the person's face from the movie. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Like, <laughs> I was like, oh no, or like just a, a vampire type, you know, like I'm gonna. Oh, actually, you know what? I I misspoke. We actually do kind of have the reasoning, and it's gonna get the plot thickened. So Alice lives through this laudanum overdose, of course, being sick for days afterwards. And the reason she gave that she was taking herself out of the equation so that Fred could marry one of the two men she had also been kind of seeing, Harry Bilger or Ashley Roselle. Oh, she's jealous. Mm -hmm. uh Uh-huh. It was a big fucking scream for attention. So she recovers and she and Fred start corresponding hot and heavy as ever. Love you, love you, love you. Can't wait to be with you. La-da-da-da-da-da-da. So this brings us to 1891, the beginning of the year in February, Alice proposed marriage to Fred in three different letters. And each time Fred replied, yes. In the third letter, Alice told Fred that she would hold her to the engagement and would kill her if she broke her promise. In June of that year, she went to see Fred again up in Gold Dust and she had saved up enough money to have about $15 and she bought Fred an engagement ring and gave it to her on that visit. And it would seem that the two were very affectionate, very in love, as Fred's nasty married sister, Mrs. Mrs. Volkmar, later said that they were, quote, disgusting in their affection for each other. And I don't, I think they were just like teenager all over each other. You know what I mean? We've all been around those people that are just like sucking each other's face off and kind of talk about it, you know? Yeah. Just a little much, a little extra. And Alice was kind of embarrassed about other people seeing them be affectionate and not so much because it was gay, but because she didn't think anybody like no lovery, devery shit should be, you know, like nobody should be doing big PDAs all over the place. But Fred thought it was fine. She was like, why are you being so uptight? So they're secretly engaged. Alice goes back down to Memphis. Fred promises that she's coming down to see her in November and they start plotting their scheme their future life together through letters okay i just really i have to pause because um if you don't marry me i'm gonna kill you i mean i'm either gonna kill myself so that you can go marry one of these dudes or if you i've asked you three times to marry me this is the third time you've said yeah it's like girl she said yes the first time she said yes the second time why do you need to threaten her life the third time obviously Um, alice is a little Alice, there's something wrong with Alice. There's something um, way wrong with Alice, but there's also something a little wrong with Fred for not seeing the ginormous, ginormous red flag that was. I think the main thing that's wrong with Fred is that she's 16 or 17. Well, that's right. She's a little bit younger than Alice, right? <laughs> they're not, yeah, they're both really young ladies. And so, like, yeah, yeah. I, I can that. see where it can get so hot and heavy and intense and like that person can manipulate you because it's so dramatic. And it is dramatic. You're life right. Life or death, you know, level like Romeo and Juliet, you know, like, oh, dagger, poison. Oh. That's what it started reminding me of a little <laughs> Yeah, bit. no, you're right. Now I'm, yeah, I needed to remember that they are teenagers because I'm sitting here as a, as a older woman like I what i don't get it like how did she see that red flag you should have run fred girl you're you're in danger you need to run fred run run fred so they come up with this scheme they're gonna run away to st louis but first they're gonna get married and alice is gonna take on the new identity of alvin j ward 
so that Fred can keep calling her Allie and then they have the same last name. Okay. Um, so Allie, Alice was going to put on a suit, have her hair trimmed in a man's style and go get the license to marry. And Fred was going to get her reverend from the Memphis church that she used to go to, to perform the ceremony. And if he said no, they were just going to go get a justice of the peace. And then they would be off to St. Louis. Allie would present as a man, go out and get them a job, be the breadwinner. They could live happily ever after. Super tight, airtight plan. I mean, does this not start to remind you a little of Romeo and Juliet? Like this, that whole thing of like the secret wedding and the disguises and the, we're going to run away to St. Louis upriver. And I don't know. It is very dramatic. I mean, very dramatic, this story. Yeah. I, I mean, I was just like riveted reading this for the first time and like hearing the story for the first time. So after Alice gets back down to Memphis and old Fred's up there in gold dust with her family by herself, Mr. Ashley Rizel begins courting Fred and Fred <gasps> gives him a photograph of herself. Girl. Oh, was this like a big thing back then? Well, think about how hard it was to get a photograph of yourself in 1891. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not in the time machine. I told you. <laughs> I told you my brain is, I think I'm a little too mellow today. I am not thinking. I mean, they could have just like take a picture with their cell phones. What? Right. She didn't like go to him on the DM. She had to like (laughs) go stand still for a minute and a half while the man did the clickety clack, whoosh, whoosh. And then I don't know how much did you have to pay to get one copy of one picture of your That's probably like a month's salary or something. I don't know. All right. Sorry. I I keep, I need to, I need to stay in the time machine. Okay. I'm in 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 1800s. Okay. Yeah. Gold dust, Tennessee. Tennessee. Yes. Anyway. So, yes. Fred has the audacity to give Mr. Ashley Roselle a photograph of herself. And Alice, ever vigilant, ever devoted, a little bit crazy. Alice catches wind of this shit and she lets Fred have it for Jesus in a letter saying she's a liar and a deceiver and and so they say Fred acknowledges that she's done wrong and she vows her unshaken fidelity to Alice promises never more to offend okay so plan to enact their elopement is for that July and Fred was going to get a boat down from Goldust to Memphis and then signal Alice that she had arrived and they would zip zap get married and off they go back up the river to St. Louis. But the biggest zero of this story, I think by far, is Mrs. Volkmar, the sister who discovers their plans. Oh, and, uh-huh. I knew she would come back in somehow. Yep. Uh, this bitch tells her husband and he takes his rifle, goes down to the dock or whatever to make sure that Fred can't get on the boat because he thinks there's some man at the bottom of all this that's going to show up and he's going to threaten them blah 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 so when the boat whistles that it's arrived in gold dust he goes up to the house to fred's room and sees that she's all packed up and ready to skip town with her lover and it does not go well the account from yield in time says quote an exciting scene ensued and i'm sure we can guess how exciting that scene must have been for fred with her shithead brother-in-law probably beating her well that's exactly what that means yeah that's mm-hmm. the image that's i have the coded language I mm-hmm. and at the same time mrs fuckmar the bitch sister writes a letter to alice's mother and then 
sends Alice a letter along with the engagement ring that she had given to Fred and all of their other like love tokens and gifts and things. Fucking Ooh, shithead. She's a... Um... Mm-hmm. Ooh. Mrs. Fuckmar. And so Alice's mother gets this letter from Mrs. Fuckmar and she's like, well, clearly Mrs. Fuckmar is feeble-minded and crazy. I don't know what she's talking about. She just blows it completely off. Like, it's insane. I don't even know that 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 old lady whatever hmm. and she wasn't an old lady i mean she was fucking fred's sister she can't have been that old she might have been 10 years older than fred but she wasn't like an old woman anyway alice's mother's just not not Dial. yeah yeah not hearing it yeah i gotcha um, so meanwhile like alice is of course straight up fucking devastated like this is the worst version of things in a way um i guess it could be worse but like this is horrible she's got all her shit sent back to her you're not allowed to see each other blah 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 blah. so she's crying all the time she can't eat she can't sleep all the symptoms of the severe broken heart syndrome mm-hmm. she kept the ring and all the little love notes and tokens and things in a locked box in the kitchen and she would kind of hide in there and spend hours like crying and laughing and laughing and crying and crying and laughing and having a cry like she was spiraling like pretty hard and you know we all fucking flip out when we get dumped and heartbroken like that's especially at 17 nine, she's 19 at this point but still. oh yeah i mean the first yeah when you get your heart just that first heart stomped right, on first, is yeah fucking horrible yeah mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. you think you're gonna die you kind so, well you do die kind of yeah your old ego the old version the innocence whatever yep. like something does die and something new comes is reborn yeah that's true but she was getting more and more out there in more than just the average person with a broken heart she's a wee bit codependent let's just say that and that's like i mean i'm being a real smart ass with the whole like marry me or i'm gonna kill you thing no yeah clearly oh yikes not well and whereas she had been kind of plump and rounded and soft like now she was very thin and gaunt and had this anxious expression and they say her eyes shone with a quote strange luster so oh. like, mm-hmm. and so those around her especially those who had known her a long time knew that something was not right something was off but nobody did anything so november came and went when fred was supposed to come visit alice but because mrs fuckmar had disconnected them and you know severed the tie fred did not come and see her which was another blow to alice obviously and like I said, now these two are, Alice is 19 and Fred is 17. And so they've been having this love affair for like two years, you know, this is like a pretty long thing that's been happening. Well, and I'm wondering about Fred's side of it, you know, like what Me is she too. having to deal with and like right. the sadness that she's feeling and mm-hmm. yeah. The fa- family pressure and all of that. Yeah. Oh, Mrs. So, Fuckmar, kick her in her uh, shins and then. Uh-huh. So in January of 1892, Fred comes back to Memphis, but this time she stays with a different friend and she didn't see or write to Alice, but Alice is of course dying to see her. So she sent a couple letters to the house where Fred was staying, declaring her love and passion. And Fred herself wrote on one of the letters returned and sent it back to her. And I kind of think this is what, that's what sent her over the edge well okay 
I'm going to imagine, and this, this is just me imagining, but I'm going to imagine that maybe Fred literally had the fear of God beaten into her. Um, who fucking knows what she was put through after she was outed like that? And she might have been scared to death to, I mean, yeah. you see she what I'm saying? Like, yeah. And that's part of the story. Like, there's very little known. But yeah, she had to you can kind of read between the lines you can infer that like her her sister and her brother-in-law were hard-ass motherfuckers and they were mm-hmm. not tolerating any kind of shenanigans and they were they were gonna lock her the fuck up i mean it's kind of amazing they even let her go to memphis at all really well i was that's a time that's definitely a time when it would have been very easy to just instant institutionalize her so you're right like there is no telling what they threatened her with and what they did to her i'm just imagining terrible things right now because I don't, I don't think, think that you, you just shut off the the no. connection. When you love someone, you love someone, you know? Yeah. I think that there was something big behind that, mm-hmm. you know, return to cinder. Yeah, I agree. Move. Yeah. But like I said, I think that was kind of the one toke over the line for Alice because... Mm-hmm. She basically spent a few days hanging around places that she thought Fred might turn up. Um, and while she was doing this, she had stolen her father's straight razor. Oh. Uh, and was just kind of toting it around with her, you know, no real plans, just sort of low-key stalking Fred, but with a straight razor in her pocket just because. So, you know, she's like flirting with a very psychotic line at this point. And she's just desperately in love with Fred and she's a little bit mad. She's a little bit crazy. So Fred finally wrote to Alice and she told her that while she still loved her, she couldn't see or speak to Alice and she prayed Alice would forgive her. So I think you're onto something with that version of events. Like Fred didn't just stop loving Alice. She just got beaten out of being able to have that relationship. So yeah, I really think so. Alice was not content with this version of closure which she had a moment there she could have made a different choice but you know alice had already kind of slid past some lines i think by this she was point. kind of an all or nothing gal she's pretty intense lady <laughs> a pretty intense fucking person really like when she committed yeah. to something it was really literally like her whole fucking world i think so this is January 25th of 1892, and Alice knows that Fred's still in town, but that would she would be getting on the boat to go back to Gold Dust. So she gets the horse and buggy ready to go, because, you know, remember, she's good at that. Oh, yeah. She enlists her neighbor, Miss Lillian Johnson, to drive her out there that evening. And Miss Lillian Johnson brings her little six-year-old nephew for some reason. I guess she's babysitting or whatever. So it's Alice and Lillian and the little boy. And... Alice is like, okay, go over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, hey, let's drive down by the docks. And so as they are coming towards the docks, Fred is coming with her sister, Joe, and their friend, Miss Purnell, in their buggy. And Fred passes within two feet of Alice on the buggies. Alice said to Lillian, oh, Lil, Fred winked at me. And that she had to see her again. So she hops off the buggy. She turns around and walks up to Fred's side of their carriage and cut her with the razor, like sliced her face, I think. And Joe, Fred's sister, like tries to intervene and step in to stop her. But Alice slices Joe on the collarbone. Ooh. And so Joe recoils, obviously, as you would. And this gave Alice the chance. And she fucking took Fred and cut her throat side to side and 
dropped her. You know, Fred fell to the ground, like, instantly bleeding out. So Alice runs back up the path to where the buggy and Lillian are with her hat off. Her hair's all wild. She's totally disheveled. She's got fucking blood on her face. And she grabs the reins and like takes off at fucking top speed, like the the 1892 version of peel out. She does it. (laughs) And onlookers were like worried. They thought, oh oh my God, that crazy bitch is going to crash that fucking carriage. And poor Lillian and the little nephew are in there. Oh my God. According to Lillian, Alice asked her if she had blood on her face and Lillian says yes. And so Alice like, well, wipe it off. And Alice goes to get her handkerchief to wipe her face. And Alice changed her mind and said, no, let it remain. It is Fred's blood and I love her so. Ooh, yeah. So, Lulilu, no, no. Like I said, a tale of star-crossed lovers, maybe. Definitely some psychosis. Um, Yes, yes. Mm. Once Alice was immediately arrested, she would reveal that for weeks before the murder, she dreamed of Fred all the time. She was completely obsessed. And after her arrest, she still said that she saw Fred all the time, whether she was dreaming or awake. The morning after the murder, she asked where Fred was. When they told her that... uh (laughs) Uh-huh. When they told her that Fred was at the funeral home, Alice begged her mother to go there, let her go there and lie down with Fred. She showed no remorse for the crime. She said she killed Fred because she had told Fred that she would and she was keeping her word. So uh, she continued. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That was your logic. Okay. I told you I'd fucking kill you if you didn't marry me. So here we are. Wow. That's a new one. Okay. Mm-hmm. And she continued to keep photos of Fred with her and near her and would cry devotional tears every time she talked about Fred. Ultimately, in her competency hearing that summer, July of 1892, Alice was found incompetent, okay. uh, insane before the murder. Like She was crazy and didn't quite know what she was doing, or if she did know what she was doing, she didn't know it was wrong. That's kind of the definition of legal, like not guilty by reason of insanity kind of vibe she told the court that she had killed fred because if they could not get married then there was no reason for either of them to live and no one else should marry fred if she couldn't but okay why didn't she kill okay but fred didn't really get a fucking say in that so no fred did not and i feel like this is just i feel like fred was nothing more than just an extension of her own i that's not love you know that's it's obsession and projection and all these weird yeah like she just was fixated on her and Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. okay i know and you know if if life wasn't worth living then why was she still alive like why didn't she take the razor to herself yeah that's a great question like why wouldn't you if if your life is not worth living because your precious friend has left you and won't return your calls or whatever you know 1892 version yeah Uh, and you're that sad and desperate and that's the kind of action you're looking to take like to do that don't go that would make more sense to me please no yeah okay yeah Yeah, exactly but obviously as we've established Al's was not well no Um, not funny and i'm not laughing at that i'm just no she was not well I know, I'm with you. So Alice was sent to Bolivar, Tennessee, to the Western State Hospital for the Insane. 
She died there six years later on March 31st, 1898, likely from tuberculosis, though there were also rumors that she may have starved herself to death. Whatever the case, a sad end to a sad story. Alice Jesse Mitchell, mentally ill, murderous, and sad, sad zero, was 25 years old. Oh, my God. Becky. Oh, God, that is sad. Yeah. It really is. In 2014, Alexis Coe, C-O-E, published a book called Alice Plus Frida Forever. And in 2019, Amazon Studios optioned it and are in pre-production for a film version of this story directed by Australian Jennifer Kent. So keep an eye out for that, kids. I think it'll be a fucking fantastic movie. And yay for more queer cinema. Like, I love this. Yay. Yeah, no, that, that is true. And this time you know, we don't have to ask people to write the movie. Somebody it's already happened. <laughs> yeah. Yay. So, yeah, that concludes the sad and um, kind of penny dreadful love story tragedy of Alice, Allie Mitchell, and Fred Frieda Ward. Oh, poor Fred. Poor Fred. Because I really think Fred stood to go on and have a perfectly fine 1890s life. You know what I mean? Like she would have probably married one of the dudes and just gotten on with things. And even if she was queer, just, you know, done her wife, mother, you know, what was expected of her. I feel like she she probably would have been fine. But who knows? I mean, it's just interesting. Like you say, like what was, kind of what was up with Fred that she found Alice so compelling? I couldn't oh, say. No. Well, I will definitely be looking for that to come out so I can watch it because I want to see what their take on the story is. Like, what do they think happened? You know, like, yeah, maybe yeah. they can fill in the blanks a little bit because I have a lot of questions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, um, hmm. <laughs> right? I'm kind of at a loss for words. Okay. Uh, I know. It's an that's interesting just, story. What a waste of a, I hate to say a waste of a life, but I mean, on Alice's side, like, what a sad, messed up yeah. life. 25 years on the planet and yikes. Mm-hmm. Huh. I, yeah, I mean, I have to wonder because, like I said, it's not. Like in some of our stories like that we've done, you can really obviously point to like abuse and poverty and, uh, you know, being deprived things in certain ways. And it's not that you can't be deprived of essential things just because you're from a well-to-do family. But I feel like, you know, she had other brothers and sisters that went on to not murder people and be fine. And like, I think she was just a little bit twisted from. Well, no, she was obviously if her teachers noticed it, if she was distant from her own family, there was obviously mental illness there. And we're not good with it today, much less back in 1800s time. So that's going to go undiagnosed. And then if you had institutionalized or think about that, it's not like they're going to solve the problem. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, my God. Kind of. I mean, my guess is like, she probably would have hurt herself before she would have hurt another person because it was such a specific thing that out you know her hurting fred and so tied up in her own kind of delusional mind around their love story and but yeah i mean i'm glad yeah i'm glad somebody's making the film because it is very like on that shakespearean level tragedy like young love oh my god uh you know 
which yeah, is, that why is I was like, oh shit, yeah, this is a great story for her. That is not a happy ending one. Mm-mm. Nope. No, it's a terrible goddamn story. But you know, kids, that's part of why we're here. That's why. Yes. Too. Yep. So God rest for Miss Miss Fred Ward and uh I hope Alice Mitchell found peace on the other side because she certainly seemed not to have any in this world. Agree. Yeah. Well, um, before we go, do you have any recommendations? Anything you've discovered lately, like movies or TV or anything you want to shout? Shout. I do. So, well, we just talked about you know dramatic crime and murder and stuff like that. So I'm into thrillers. I love things like that. I'm not into horror or gore, but I'm into thriller type stuff. There is an amazing show that Amazon put out called Tell Me Your Secrets. And yeah, tell me about this. I it haven't is, seen it yet. It sounds oh, it's fucking brilliant. It is so, so good. And yes, there's we have queerness in it and then we have all all these different things going on it is an amazing story um and i cannot wait for season two i'm hooked yeah 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 yeah. i mean i pretty much just gorged that whole first season and was like aha we're season two (laughs) right right i have some shows like that where i'm just like when is the next one coming when is it coming yeah so tell me your secrets that is a brilliant brilliant show awesome so yeah, um, I wanted to shout out in the recommendation station. I was talking about podcasts late, last time, and I, I think, or the time before, and how um, my friend Kristen's podcast, Your Fave is Problematic, led me to like, oh, podcasts, how cool. And early on in their podcast chat group, I think, there was a post about like, what are some of y'all's favorite podcasts, da, 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 da. and there was a whole list. So I ended up running down a lot of those that I thought sounded cool. And I ended up falling in love with um, two I want to mention today. One of them is called Red Handed and the other is The Guilty Feminist. And they're both British shows. But Red Handed is these two women, Saruti and Hannah. And they together, like, you know, you and I take turns telling each other stories. They together tell the story of a true crime. And they're very good at it. They're very smart. It's not necessarily a a comedy true crime pot but they're funny you know like they they have some levity and some criticism and like they're very smart and cool and so if you're into true crime go check out red-handed it's a great show and then the other one is called the guilty feminist and it's a com- feminist comedy panel show kind of and before the pandemic they did most of their shows live which was great because there's a live audience and you're here oh, in the okay. room and but it's hosted the main host and creator is deborah francis white and she's just one of my personal sheroes brilliant funny feminist and they've been doing that show now i don't know for probably five years at least and she always has incredible guests on really talented funny smart amazing women and they talk about different topics and it's great. So if you guys are looking for more like funny women talking about cool shit, <laughs> go check out the guilty feminist. So I have more recommendations on the podcast stuff, but I want to kind of take my time with it and, uh, and parse them out instead of just kind of like trying to rattle off a grocery list for everybody. Cause that seems less personal. So we'll just go a little at a time. And, uh, yeah, I haven't watched anything super new and noteworthy. I don't think but I did go on a little Melissa McCarthy kick and like watched a bunch of her movies over a couple of days. I love so her. Great. Like I just needed a laugh and they made me laugh so hard. Like the boss, I had never seen that one. There's a street fight with like 
Girl Scouts, basically. Oh my god. I've seen that, yeah. She's and great. Then I was telling you about Thunder Force. That was the newest one, like with her and Octavia Spencer. And there's a Jason Bateman subplot that literally I was just crying. Like it's the absurdity of it. It's the kind of shit that you and I just like it can tickle you to the point of like, I'm gonna pee my pants. So <laughs> I highly recommend if you need a great laugh, go check out the lovely Melissa McCarthy collection. And I wanted to mention, like, if you notice, her husband co-writes and and or writes and directs all, almost all of her movies. And so I think it's really cool that they have that little, like, team, team career, you know, and they do a great job. They're really funny fucking people. And uh, I'm not remembering his name right now. Sorry, Melissa, Mr. McCarthy, Mr. Melissa McCarthy. Um, but he's usually in a cameo in the movies too. Like he'll usually have some small little role. Uh, Ben Falcone. There it is. Ben Falcone, Melissa McCarthy. Anyway, love them. Love you guys. Hope you're listening someday out there in the future. Maybe we'll get her as a guest one day. Wouldn't that be fun? That would be a lot of fun. That reminds me that I dreamt about the weirdest. I dreamt in a movie last night and it was a really bad movie. And it had, um, Patrick Stewart and he was at a barbecue in like cargo shorts and like a turquoise t-shirt <laughs> and he had like a beer belly but he saw his beautiful like Patrick Stewart accent and it was just so weird and Miley Cyrus was there and I was like girl I'm not gonna, oh. gonna say what I want to say on that one but I was like why is she here and like what are you wearing what is that like what Oh, yeah yes, at a barbecue it. with patrick stewart and miley cyrus like where the fuck did that come from i do not know well i don't know i had a dream the other night i was trying to evade capture from the police we were in a high-speed chase and i was like i was i don't think i was driving i was like in the passenger seat but somebody else was driving and we were going down the left lane and there was a car coming head on it was like that movie thing where last minute swerve and then you say oh and I was just like, what is this? Why am That's I in a... Really stressful. I was in my own thriller movie. Maybe it was like an after effect of recording the, the, the World War II show the other day. I don't know. It was like action on the brain or something. Yeah, that sounds like that's uh, you know I think I'd rather be in that car than be hanging out with Miley Cyrus. Patrick Stewart yeah. was okay, but he was wearing cargo shorts and he cargo wasn't really. Shorts, though, girl. Yeah, I know. I was like, Patrick Stewart, belly. why are you here and why are we at a barbecue at this? shitty place this is weird i don't know <laughs> i don't even really like barbecue that much like what what is this shit somebody hand me a beer right. anyway my solo cup. <laughs> oh my god yeah uh, well, yeah solo cups actually now that you mention it yeah yeah well listen friends out there we're going to be back soon with our next installment of our pride the celebrations dedicated shows and next time we're going to be talking about icons miss Marsha p johnson and miss sylvia rivera so do not miss that and roxy will get the turn to tell us about a horrible zero do you have somebody picked out yet or i have not picked out a zero yet okay. she will come to me she will oh, come yeah. to me they, they always, always do mm-hmm. yes that's how we do it, kids. We kind of like find the amazing sheroes that we want to talk about, and then we try to sort of pair it with an interesting zero hot take or vintage murder story or what you know, whatever zero comes up and and taps us on the shoulder, and that's how we do it. But we would mm-hmm. love to hear from you if you have suggestions or if you want to give us any um, feedback. Please join us on Facebook. We have a page for the show. We also have a chat group called Sheroes and Zeros Pod Chat Group. 
Uh, you can find us on Instagram at SheRoseZeros. And please, please email us at RoxyAndFoxy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Love to hear your Shiro stories or tell us about a zero you ran into last month or, you know, anything you want to talk, talk to us about, just send it on in. We're excited and uh, hopefully get to share those stories with everybody else soon. So, yay. Yes. Well done. What a fun, what a fun couple of tales we have today. I mean, yeah, one was like mellow and the other was super dramatic. Yeah. 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 There was some high drama. Well, not really mellow. Story. I don't know why I keep saying well, What is that? That's my word today. Mellow. <laughs> I feel like your Shiro had a more kind of like, like very intense, but not like a super kind of in your face presence. No, so, she's not an in your face presence. Yeah. She just is a very, I don't, she really is, she just comes across as having been a very lovely person. Like that is a, an adjective that fits her perfectly. A very lovely person mm -hmm. uh, in every way. And just her mannerisms, the way she speaks and, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm the so way glad she, you found her. Yeah, she's she was a beautiful, beautiful woman. Beautiful woman. Yeah, I'm so good to get to share her story with our friends out there. And yeah, be back for more fun with the ladies soon. I love our job. I can't get enough of these gals. Moxie's out. Words, whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's start over. Because <laughs> I, I listened for a while, it. I did that. I did that too. But handle it. Oh, it comes down to the the day G G O B. <laughs> oh, we're starting off well. <laughs> I cannot spell. Yeah, you know, you all can do draw your own. I cannot talk today. You all can do your own conclusion. <laughs> so, are we ready to ready to rock and roll? Yeah, let's let's go. I can't. That's so dorky. That. Who says that anymore? God, this is going to be rough. I'm not. I'm like Moses. I'm stuttering. <laughs> Did Moses stutter? Yes, totes. Oh, that's why he had have Aaron and his brother like walk around with him and oh. help him out all the time. I didn't realize he was. Yeah, well, he had a staff that could like do things really cool. Why don't I have a staff on top of that? Anyway, and hey, when in doubt, just do like a Moira Rose interpretation of it. <laughs> that's a great idea oh my she god her, she's i've coined it a term franz you know my <laughs> friends who are my fans franz. i'm like part she-hulk actually i am she-hulk i am she-hulk the hulk was always my favorite like of all the whole canon of all the cartoons of all the things when i was a kid i loved the hulk well i'm gonna try to be the doctor right now post-production magic <laughs> can't say words i don't know what it is incredibly incredible <laughs> yeah yeah no that's good yeah you and me at the saloon with our laudanum uh. <laughs> oh that sounds pretty good oh, i just did it again oh my god so <laughs> i'm sorry ever, no it's fine i just flashed a dolly i was like this is before dolly's time girl <laughs> la, la, la. Was he drinking what a, the a keg fuck? beer out of a silk? <laughs> <laughs> it was Patrick Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> There's just no end to the amazingness. I can't talk today. That's okay. We're done. <laughs> <laughs>